names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. Never forget that more pollution is caused by manufacturing a car, even a Prius, than driving one. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 38, Anything Goes. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in Durham, North Carolina at another one of our city parks that we hang out in. Um, so, yeah, the never forget I just uh, said was, um, you know, I kept seeing these like Facebook posts and t-shirts that talk about some kind of like propaganda, like never forget the World Trade Center, you know, and what they mean by that is a very one-sided view of what happened there, or never forget, you know, our, our troops, or never forget this or that. And I got so tired of the, the propaganda aspect of it that a while back I came up with my own list of never forgets, things that I wish people would never forget. So, you know, I just kind of wrote them out, and uh, we will have those sprinkled throughout this podcast. Um <laughs> With our beatnik snapping. And- With our beatnik stylistics. <laughs> and this episode is called Anything Goes. This is, uh, I got the, the name from actually a nature camp that I was working at, where at the end of the day, you know, they'd have these two activities they'd call Anything Goes. And it could be cloud watching, it could be maybe you're in the mood to knit, but pretty much anything goes. And if kids want to sign up for it, you know, you might have one kid, you might have half the camp. Um so, yeah, that inspired this. We decided after all this homework we're doing with all these focused topics, particularly the president's, um, we just have an episode that was really no bounds, you know, anything goes. We could talk about anything we wanted, even if it's completely off escaping society topic. So, uh, yeah, that's what this episode is. Um, anything you want to add to that? Uh, I'm just glad for the break. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> Never forget that every group of helpers is trying to fix a problem caused by the last group of well-intentioned helpers who were addressing a problem caused by another bunch of helpers. Bong! <laughs> That's our hobo stove. <laughs> yeah. The part of our drum will be played by our hobo stove. Thank you, hobo stove. So I wanted to talk a little bit about our artistic license in word usage. Um, as we listen through our episodes, you know, we are very, uh, what should I say, impressed by some of the the words that we come up with from Teresa's surprise. Surprise! Ah, <laughs> yes, we have quite a surprise here. <laughs> I think to, that was supply. To her use of the word prosper, as in we have much prosper in this country. <laughs> there is prosper everywhere. To some of my words, as in <laughs> laterly, and the president's. Yes. So 
we wanted to explain why this is. Um, <laughs> this is because English is not, in fact, our first language, and this might not be something a lot of you know about us. Um, we both began using a primitive blend of sign language and silence with a little bit of nonsense and occasional hieroglyphics, sometimes written in our own excrement. <laughs> so that was our original language as far as we know. I barely even remember using that language. It's been so far back. So we're str still struggling to take on this new language that is not our native tongue, English. Um, you have to fight hard after your, uh, your excrement writing. <laughs> oh, and... We're also learning, this is, how, episode 38? I think so, unless I got that wrong. Yeah, sometimes we get that wrong, too. But we're learning why most podcasts are guest shows, or at least they become guest shows, because we have to learn all of this ourselves, or it's our experience. And Gumby, did you want to add anything else to that? Well, yeah, you listen to most podcasts, and, uh, you know, they have different people that come on that come on an interview, um, which is hard for us for a number of reasons, one being that we're using a little iPad, and like right now we're at a random city park leaning over a park uh, table talking into a tiny little iPad that's we're using the magnetic back on a Wizard of Oz lunchbox to hold it up. Um, it's just it doesn't really lend itself very easy to, to setting up interviews with people. Um, but... Yeah, so we're going, you know, we're, we're, this is season four, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we're realizing why almost every podcast we listen to has like guests, you know, for one thing, it keeps it interesting and versatile. But another thing is you run out of things you feel like you know about to talk about. Um, but we're kind of enjoying the challenge of having to learn everything we want to talk about, learn something about it, you know. As we keep saying, we're not experts in anything, but we are enthusiasts. And I've always believed that, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I have more respect for the enthusiast. I think they have more to share than the so-called expert. Because the expert often is someone who doesn't think of themselves as an explorer so much as someone who's already reached the mountaintop. They've closed doors to their learning in some ways. So I enjoy the exploration of, of not feeling like an expert, of, of digesting ideas that are somewhat fresh to me. Um, when I was having my social anxiety, and I still have it sometimes, but when it was worse, every now and then I'd get an invitation from somebody who remembered me um, way back when I used to do a lot of teaching, and they'd say, hey, um, you know, I was thinking about doing this basket weaving class. Would you be interested in coming in with my students and teaching about baskets or tracking? And I didn't feel up for handling a class, but I could teach one person, you know, so I'd tell them, well, I don't really want to take the class, but um, how about if I just teach you? And inevitably, they would say no. They'd say, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like you to come in. And I'd always think, if you find this a valuable thing, something so valuable that you seek me out, want to share it with this group, and you think they should learn it, why do you think you shouldn't learn it? Hmm. And that would frustrate me sometimes because I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd think, wow, you can't even make the time to learn a basket, and yet you're trying to seek me out and organize this, so I'll come in and teach your class a basket. But if you learned it, you could teach the class you're already familiar with this basket and kind of bring it into your own little tribe there. It's like the buy-in factor of if the person in charge doesn't buy into it, then nobody else is going to either because they don't see a reason to. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought that I'm kind of in a similar boat with this podcast because our technology, we can't call in, you know, somebody like, oh, I'd like to learn more about, I don't know, anarcho-primitivism. Let's get this guy who's written a book about it. So it occurs to me that if we really want to learn something, if this is something we want to share, why don't we put in the effort and really try to learn everything we can? Um, You know, read as many books on it and just discuss what we can. So that is both our limitation and I think our strength with what we're dealing with. I still want to know about wild tending, though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Never forget to consider that feelings of stress, anxiety, and depression just may be healthy, appropriate responses to participating in a culture committing a global murder-suicide. I wish we had a gong. <laughs> Damn, we should have got a spoon. <laughs> All right. So one of the things we wanted to talk about, um, kind of check it in with tales from the life of a hobo. <laughs> so That's here's, where the gong would come in. Yeah. So there's some unique things that happen to us. And by unique, I mean probably things that don't happen to other people a lot if you have a house and you have a job and all that, which is one of the things that I find fascinating and frustrating and challenging, exploring this whole trying to pull away from society somewhat. And a few weeks ago, we pulled into this uh, mall parking lot. And this mall is on its way to closing. Like it's barely got any people in there. Um, they still open the doors. People go in there to walk around, but there's only a few stores left open. It's, it's transitioning into something else. So I parked the van. I hung out my, like, often we have laundry that I've washed in a river and still needs to be dried some. So as the sun's coming out, I see which side the sun's on on the van and hang it in the, the, on the windows and on the hood and just kind of let it dry that way. And it works really well. Got my dog out, and Teresa and I started walking around this big mall parking lot. Like I said, not a busy place at all. Well, Sherlock is almost nine years old now, and that whole nine years, not once, and I've walked through the middle of cities. I've walked in the suburbs. I've walked everywhere with this dog off-leash. He's really good off-leash. He stays out of the road. He does what I tell him. Um... You know, I keep a leash with me because one thing, if we pass another dog, I don't know how they're going to interact. So I put them on a leash if that, you know, I see another dog coming. But no problem. But this morning, we run into a mall cop. Your typical, like, stereotypical mall cop, you know, trying to be the big shot. So of all the cops, all the sheriffs, all the, you know, different authorities I've walked this dog past, they can see the dog's not a problem. They don't say anything. No one said anything. The small cop says, excuse me, sir, you can't have your dog off leash here. And I say, why not? And she said, um, well, it's not allowed. And if the dog like is not a service dog, it needs to be on a leash. So I tell her, well, my dog is a service dog. My dog does a lot of services for me. And I've got the leash right here in case it comes up, you know, in case it's needed. <laughs> well, that seemed to confuse her a little bit. And she just kind of like grumbled a little bit, didn't say anything. And I kept walking with my dog off leash. We took our walk. We come back, and I see a sheriff parked right behind the van. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I put Sherlock on a leash. You know, one thing I've learned, choose your battles. I'm not going to push it with the sheriff because obviously she called the sheriff, um, and I'm not going to win that battle. So I put the dog on a leash. We walk up, and he says, well, I see you have a dog on a, your dog on a leash. And I'm like, yep. And he said, You're, you can't have your laundry on the van um, like that. 
And I say, how come? What, what rule am I breaking? And the guy just keeps insisting, like, well, you're just not allowed to do that. And I say, well, could you tell me what law I'm breaking? Because if I'm, you know, doing something I'm not supposed to do, it'd be nice to know where to find these things so I don't repeat it. And he tells me it's something called house rules. So he tells me this mall is private property. And I ask him, what sense does that make? I thought they wanted us to come here. It's a public place. They want us to come here and spend our money. And he's like, no, it's private property. They can decide who they want here and who they don't. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, again, like this isn't a battle I can win. So, But I'm so pissed off. I can't have my own laundry on my own van. It's not hurting anybody. I asked the cop, who's this hurting? He's just, they don't want it. So I'm really feeling like uh, like I'm getting screwed here, you know, and I put the laundry up and I go back up to the car and I uh, ask him, I say, well, let me ask you this. So if there's no way for me to see what these rules are and you can just show up and I tell him you're the guy with the gun, I guess I have to do what you tell me, huh? So if a guy with a gun can show up and make me do something that there's no rule, there's no written thing that I could have like known better about, you know, it's just they invented a rule. What if I was, I don't know, black? What if I was gay? What if I was walking through the mall and they just decided that they took a disliking to me and thought I was a dangerous kind of person? Could they just have me escorted out of the mall? And, uh, you know, the cop looks at me and says, you want the truth? And I said, well, how do you feel about enforcing that? You know, that couldn't happen unless there were guys with guns that showed up and made it happen. And he said, that's my job. And I said, you don't have to do this. You know, like that doesn't have to be your job. You could choose to do something else. You could be a janitor. You could be a hobo. And like I, I looked at Teresa when I said hobo and he said, are you calling her a hobo? Damn. And, you know, he was treating it like it was an insult. But one of the things <laughs> I, was, I was thinking to myself is, you know, one thing a hobo never has to say it's my job, so I have to do it. Ooh. You know, this guy is like a slave. He's a dog. Like, he doesn't think about what he's doing. It's, it's his job to do what they tell me. Hobo doesn't have to do that. Um, Hobo doesn't like something? Yeah. Hobo moves on. Hobo le- lets it go and <laughs> goes someplace else and does something else. So, yeah, it just, that was, that morning was really poignant for me. It pissed me off so much, you know. I felt like I wanted to make a stand because it's my clothes, my van. Absolutely no one is getting hurt with my van, my my clothes getting sun on top of my own van. But a guy with a gun is telling me that I have to do something. And because he's a guy with a gun, I indeed have to do it or risk, you know, who knows what. Um... I don't know what kind of trouble would have followed on that if I hadn't complied. But it really, to me, emphasizes the facade of freedom we have. There's a game being played, you know, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do, what everybody else does, which, let's not forget this lifestyle is the destruction caused by this way that we're all taught is the right way to live. If you step outside of that and don't live that way, even if you do things like collect rainwater, If you make a a compost toilet, you can run into um, a dispute with the law. So when you start stepping out of line in some way, that freedom, that illusion is taken away. And I don't know, I just, I felt very thankful in a way that I'm living a life that I can see that it is an illusion because I'm surrounded with people that are, you know, they say, go out and vote, go, go do this. They pay their taxes. They go to, go to a job every day. They, they have a house that they think is theirs, 
but it's because they're playing the game. That's what you're getting a golden ticket for, is to have this illusion, the simulation that you have freedom. But if you start doing something that's unusual, that's really unusual, they can just revoke it at any time. House rules. You tell me where you're at that isn't someone considering it some kind of private property. We've even been in a park. You know, If somebody would ask me that question, what's not private property? I might have said, well, I think maybe a park is public property. We've had a guy show up, and actually this guy's really friendly. Um, he's gotten to know us. He's one of the maintenance workers for the city. But he was saying, yeah, man, if somebody complains, and they will inevitably because you guys are like sometimes hanging out laundry or whatever, they could complain, and um, they could have you kicked out of the park. <laughs> so where do you go? So there is, in fact, no place that you can be that you actually have freedom. It's an illusion. You have freedom to be like everyone else. That's what your freedom is. And if you want the freedom to be something other than that, something maybe that uh, is learning how to live sustainably upon, upon the planet, that freedom is revoked. And, yeah, it's a really interesting thing to explore. Yeah, and I had my own run-in with uh, authority figures as well as doing things that kind of um, other people maybe don't think of as normal. So... My story is about a study that I signed up for to make some money, like a good hobo taking up a gig. Seemed pretty easy. You uh, you go in a couple of times, you answer questions, and if you complete the entire study, you can make 250 bucks. <laughs> so I was like, hell yeah. <coughs> and that day, um, I had already worked it out with Gumby that you know I would just walk over there from a place where we were both at and... It was raining, and he could have driven me over there, but I just thought, well, you know what? It's not that bad of a rain. It's not that cold. So I took a, a, a black garbage bag that we had in the car, and I punched some holes in it to put my head and my arms through, and I took another grocery bag and put that over my hair. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I, was a, I was a bag lady that day, and I walked over to this building where the study was taking place. I took my stuff, like my bags off of me before I went in. And um, when I got there, I was a little bit early and I thought everything was going well. And the uh, the woman came out to the, the lobby to, to get me and complete the questionnaire. And the, by the way, the study, it says, the purpose of this research study is to learn how emotion regulation changes over the adult lifespan and how the ability to regulate emotions relates to depression symptoms. So they already had me do a study, uh, like a questionnaire online to see if I was eligible. And some of the questions I remember were asking like, are you depressed? How long have you been depressed? And I've had depression um, probably for my whole life, but I remember it being really bad back in like 2008, 2009. So that's a pretty long time. That's over 10 years now. And uh, so I'm, I'm answering the questions that this woman is asking me in this little office. And uh, she's really nice and everything. But the questions start taking a weird turn. Like there's all these different things that are coming up that, first of all, like, for example, she was asking me if I binge eat. Now, I'm not a binge purge person that has an eating disorder, but I'm going to tell you, if I want to eat a bag of chips, like a whole bag of chips, I'm, I can do it. 
You just ate a whole blueberry pie we got from the food pantry. Okay. It was good, though. And The answer to that question would have been yes. And I do not let that go. I hate throwing up. So it's not a, a question of having an eating disorder. I just like food. But the way the questions were worded, it was kind of strange, and it made me seem like I might have, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, a lot more problems than what I have. And it wasn't just that. There were a bunch of questions that came up, like, do you ever have images in your head of violent scenes? And I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, don't you? Like, I didn't ask the woman, but don't you have occasionally images of violence? It's not like I'm going to do the violence. I had one when you ate that whole blueberry pie. Yeah. So, I mean, I was. I think I was answering the questions too truthfully. And... I have a degree in psychology. I should have looked more at what the questions were on that study, um, the questionnaire before I went into the study, as well as this paperwork, this huge book of paper that they gave me to look through and sign. But I really just wanted my money. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, they kicked me out. They were like, okay, well... Um, thank you for coming in and, you know, thank you for answering these questions and you'll get a check for like 20 bucks in the mail. Well, at least I got 20 bucks, but I was really sad leaving there. Now, just imagine I'm putting on my bags to walk in the rain. And by the way, I've got on these oversized, obnoxiously orange flip-flops to uh, complete the ensemble. And I'm walking in the rain, and I've just been rejected <laughs> after answering all of these very personal questions. And that blew me away because they're, like, attracting people that r- relate to depression, that right. feel like they've had depression. And the callous way that, like, they rejected her was, like, and these are the people that are supposedly maybe going to come up with a treatment for depression. I mean, to me, it just, like, the whole system of it was so... Uh, Raleigh just exposed how inadequate the treatment is that they would like, oh, you're depressed? Come in. We're going to ask you some questions. No, we don't want you. And and then send you out in the rain in your trash bags. She did say, like, um, there may be some feelings of discomfort from answering the questions after you leave. Now, I, you know, I had obviously, like, I had told her that I walked there, and I'm walking near very busy roads over a bridge, across railroad tracks, and I don't, like, I I really don't think I would have done anything serious, but the, the thoughts did enter my mind, you know, like, like going and just, I don't know, like, maybe I'm just such a worthless person for this study that... Oh, they did not. They did, but I didn't act on it, so it was almost like this study I was too depressed for, but at any rate... Um, I'll look for my $20 check. And then, just to uh, to lighten up the day here, I caught a glimpse of myself in the window as I was walking past this business. And I here I am in a big black trash bag <laughs> with a white grocery store plastic bag around my head and my orange flip-flops. And I, it made me smile. So I'm able to, uh, to joke and, and take it lightly because that helps me. But it's also interesting that when I think about sharing these stories and thoughts that people get really uncomfortable and they start to maybe even think like, I shouldn't be so lighthearted about it or I shouldn't be, you know, laughing and saying like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing it for the money. 
But I think it's important that if people feel a certain way or if people want to share, that they do share. I think that's part of the whole human experience. And then, as I'm walking up to meet Gumby at yet another business that he's waiting for me at, uh, this guy comes over and, well, I'll let you finish that story. (laughs) Well, we're sitting there and we're kind of laughing about the experience. And by the way, before we move on from that, I used to sign up for these kind of studies. There was one when I was younger that was like uh, narcotic lollipops, which I thought would be the most (laughs) awesome name for a punk band. But like you could eat this lollipop and by the time you get done with this lollipop, you are prepped for surgery. I was like, hell yeah, sign me up for that. But they didn't accept me. But I'm not sure that I would even try that anymore. I'm not, I'm not saying I absolutely wouldn't, but I have such distrust of the system and the scientists, and I've, I've learned about uh, MK Ultra and, and crap like that, that, uh, yeah, and then Teresa's whole experience, you know, like, oh, you're depressed, you know, well, how's the little rejection to go along with that? I mean, let us, let us bring up all of these old memories to the surface and make you feel that depression once again. Yeah, we are not safe in their hands. And that little, like, bit of money that they're trying to entice us in with, like, a little breadcrumb, I mean, it, it's an ugly fucking thing. So I don't know. I'd have to be pretty desperate to try to sign up for a study now. But anyway, we're sitting in front of this uh, co op. It's a co op, right? Co op grocery store? Yeah. Yeah, we're sitting there, and this homeless guy comes up to me, and uh, he gives me this folded-up napkin. He says, hey, there's a number in here that might help you out. (laughs) And I say, all right, thank you. And, you know, he kind of walks off, and uh, I'm I'm thinking, like, you know, is this like a a homeless shelter or something? Am I looking rougher today than I thought I did? I thought it was like an employment service or something. Yeah, some kind of phone number, and that's what he was kind of, I think, implying. But I (laughs) unfolded that, and there's a $20 bill in there. You know, this is a homeless guy that just gave me a $20 bill. So that was both hilarious and uh, really, um, wow, I I didn't think about this in this terms until I'm telling the story right now, or you're telling the story, we're both telling the story, but uh, the contrast. Here's the middle, upper-class, white-collar people that supposedly are taking care of us, you know, that are coming up with new drugs, trying out things, that are just so cold and follow up. Rege- uh, depression with rejection. Here's a homeless guy. Supposedly the crazy people, the the alcoholics, the the outcast of society. The that just that just gave us a twenty dollar bill for no reason than he just guessed that maybe we could benefit from it. I mean that really is a, an interesting contrast, and we see that over and over. Everybody sees this over and over. The generosity among the poor. You know, the less you have, the easier it is to share. Teresa and I were, were talking about this as well, you know, how if you've got saved up money, you might have like, I don't know, $10,000. And that feels sort of like a burden, you know, you're kind of clutching it. You're afraid of what's going to happen when that's gone because um, that's you your rainy day. You, you prostituted yourself. You traded your life for that money. Yeah. And even if you think about sharing it, I mean, how do you really share it? Maybe you like kick somebody, if you're really generous, a hundred bucks, but you're still holding back, what, 9,000? <laughs> I'm not going to try to do that math right now. <laughs> but it's it's just a token. But if you're really on the streets and you have nothing, it's so easy to share in a very genuine, meaningful way. You've got a sandwich. You know, it's natural to split it in half when there's somebody else that's hungry and like, here, man, it, it doesn't feel like you've given anything that was hard to give. It, it just comes naturally. So there's something powerful with having nothing, with identifying with the bottom rung of society. And, uh, 
yeah, that was really cool, that guy, that homeless guy. And uh, I felt, <laughs> at first, I was like, wow, you know, $20, cool. But then there was another homeless guy that had been out in the rain all day asking for money that I'm looking at. And I'm like, oh, man, such a gesture of goodwill. I feel like the thing to do is pass this along. So I went out there and gave gave it to that guy. Um, but another time, I would have kept it because, hell yeah, I can benefit from 20 bucks. And there was another time soon after that when you had... <laughs> your laundry on the van again. I think it was our laundry. Oh, the library. At the library. Well, I want to say before you move on to that part. Oh, um, oh go ahead. Maybe it'll come back to me and slip my mind. Well, I was just saying um, that we were at this public library that we normally go to, and we normally put our clothing on the van, you know, as tastefully as possible to dry it off. And this security guard came out. First, we were having a picnic, and this younger security guard came out, and he was like, um, excuse me, are you, uh, what are you guys doing? You having a picnic or something? <laughs> yeah, we were just sitting out in the grass in the library, and again, a, supposedly a public place. And for the, I got to say, the library often is, like, you know, of all the government places and, and places of our civilization, the library is a beautiful place. We're sitting out there having our picnic. Um well, you go ahead. I stole your story. That's no, right. And the security guard came up, asked us, and he was just like, oh, I was just, you know, somebody had told me that you were out here maybe like selling stuff or something. So, so. somebody apparently told on us. We're, <laughs> we're literally sitting out there eating sandwiches on a, a plastic bag mat that I'd made, and somebody went and told the security guard, like, it's a problem. So They also thought we might have been smoking something, which we weren't. Yeah, and the security guard was really nice. He came and checked on us and was just like, okay, you know, you guys aren't, you know, that's fine. And he obviously just felt like his job, he had to come out there and check it out because somebody complained. What I what pissed me off is whoever that person was that complained. What kind of busybody little pretentious ass was that? <laughs> you know, that's the person that really ticked me off that day. But but then uh, later on, another a different security guard who knows us a little bit more, he's been there a while at the library, he, uh, he came up to me and Gumby was, um, I think you were right around the corner using the uh, outlet on the mm-hmm. building. And the security guard was like, is that your van? And, of course, it still has our clothes on it. And I was like, yes, sir. (laughs) Fully expecting him to be like, you have to take the clothes off the van. I'm like, well, then it's going to be naked. Um, But then he said, well, you just tell anybody if they give you any trouble or they say anything, you already talked to the security guard and here. And he handed me a $10 bill wrapped in a $1 bill. And... I was just like, wow, thank you so much. And he was like, yeah, y'all are all right. You know, I, I know, you know, I know you guys. I know you're all right. So if anybody gives you any problems, you just tell them to come see me. I was like, okay. Yeah, and that's a good reminder, too, because that's a good contrast with my first story about the the sheriff, you know. Interactions like that make me feel like there needs to be a revolution. There needs to be a war to break out. <laughs> and the people that we're going to have to fight are the people with the guns and the badges. And you know, there they definitely are going to be a lot of people with guns and badges. You know, if there's any kind of big change, drastic change, it's going to happen in any kind of uh, sudden way. But it's nice to be reminded that behind those guns and badges are often humans, you know, that people can remember their humanity as well. You know, I'm like thinking about what we just learned about 1877 with the militias being called out to uh, put down the strikers and the, ra- the the railroad strike and how, like, the militias kept joining the strikers. <laughs> you know, they'd start realizing, like, oh, man, these guys do need better pay and everything. They, I'm, I'm with them. And they just set aside their guns and, like, we're with you guys. <laughs> so, you know, I like to be reminded that uh, we, we've met some really 
nice people um, along the way, like when we were hitchhiking, that are otherwise in a group that I would consider my enemy. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Um, I just, I mean, I just think it's really, yeah, a great contrast to see how law enforcement or security guards, whatever they are, I mean, they're, they're humans too. And, um, I just really appreciated that side of humanity to, to recognize. And I mean, I'm appreciative of the money, but I'm actually more appreciative of him saying like, you know, if anybody messes with you, you tell them to come see me. Like, yeah, I know y'all are all right. <laughs> and here's another story that happened a few nights ago. Um, stories from the streets, streets, streets. This is our um, special effects episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we were sleeping in the van, of course, and this night we were at a 24-hour grocery store. So we have a little place that we park there occasionally. It's not one of our favorite spots, but it's kind of in our rotation, you know, so we're not seeing any one place too much. We're sleeping there, and it's like it's a very bitter cold night, Um, really early in the morning, like just past midnight. I don't know exactly what time it is. We hear this homeless guy that's just ranting and um he's getting closer and closer and at first it wakes me up and i'm kind of annoyed and then i'm kind of like hoping he doesn't come over to the van and have any reason to like uh pay attention to us you know kind of bring attention our way that we don't want um and then i start listening to him and and the only part that i could hear out of all this ranting he was doing and he was going on like he was a preacher he he wasn't just uh You know, I've seen people out there just cussing. He had something to say. He was saying something. And what I heard was him say, You are not of life. You are not of life. And then he kept going and, uh, you know, walking. And I'd kind of hear him, like, move out of the parking lot and down the road. And you could just hear him. And, you know, I was thinking about how cold it is out there. And for one thing, he's out there keeping his body temperature up. We've done houseless retreats and. uh you know, I, I've seen for my myself what a cold night on the street can be like. You can't always, no matter how much you prepare for it with cardboard, with plastic, sometimes you just can't get warm and comfortable. And sometimes what you do is you get up and you walk the streets at night. And then during the day, hopefully the day will have a little sun, something, and you can catch up on your sleep then. But I think that's what this guy was doing. He was walking. You know, he was just, he, he couldn't get comfortable someplace, so he was just walking. And what he said, you are not of life. Um, You know, I thought a bit about him out there with all this concrete, you know, this whole city that's built on a shell of concrete with little patches of grass just allowed to poke up here and there. But concrete for cars to drive on, for people with their rubber-soled shoes to walk on the sidewalks, um, cars to park. And do we need these cars? No. They were sold to us for somebody to make money. The first people that bought the cars were to show off that they had money. It was all about money. It wasn't about need. It wasn't about life. It was about economy, technology, not life. And that now the the land is buried under this concrete and surrounded by these businesses that are still lit. There's nobody out there but this homeless guy walking around. And if I I looked out that van window, there's electricity being poured into these streetlights that are still illuminating the city. And he's surrounded by businesses that are heated. Mm. There's empty spaces all around this man 
that are heated for products, products that often would actually benefit at least as much if it was cold in there, but they just don't want to go through, you know, heating it back up for the customers the next morning, just leave it on or leave it trapped. Or even if it's not actively heated, the the residual heat, it's a better place than where he's having to exist. This whole culture, just the contrast of that brought it home to me of how I was surrounded by a culture that is not of life. And all of us who participate in this are not of life. We are not of life. Not of life. And... Uh, lost my train of thought there. <laughs> it was it was really amazing. I um I also woke up hearing him, and I don't know what was wrong if if he was saying words that didn't quite make sense, or I wasn't quite awake and I didn't understand him. But I did hear that you are not of life, and uh, I just I immediately like my whatever annoyance or surprise or supply <laughs> <laughs> my surprise my surprise. Um, I I quickly moved into that feeling of, man, it's like 15 degrees Fahrenheit out there, and we're in our van all snug and warm with our, you know, dog and all our blankets and sleeping bags, and he's just out there trying to stay alive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I thought about, like, even if he could build a leaf hut or a shelter, like... Where? You know, when everything is considered private property. I mean, even us in our van, you know, we just shared some stories that involved either getting run off from someplace or having the threat of being run off from someplace because everything is private property. House rules. You don't even need to break a rule. They can make that shit up as they go. Um, And that could be anybody for any reason, anywhere. So this guy, where would he even build something? He, He, if he tries to get warm someplace, He's at the complete mercy mercy of people who are not of life, a culture that's not of life, that doesn't give a shit about him or their fellow people who just do the minimal that they feel they have to to keep doing what they do, which is, you know, drive these cars, run these businesses, run these machines. He couldn't even have a fire. I was thinking, like, man, where would he start a fire? What if I, I gave him matches? What if he had the presence of mind and the will and the knowledge to be able to start a fire? Where the hell would he do that? Right. Any place he goes, he would be breaking a a law. The life of a fire to feed the life in him, the warmth, that's not allowed. It's covered with products and concrete. Everything, you know, I don't know. I just know it was a window into seeing the city in a way that I hadn't really seen it before through his tirade. It was a, a moment that really clicked. That we are not of life, and I guess that's all I have to say about that. But it was a, it was one of those poignant moments, like us being what some people would call homeless ourselves, sleeping in our van, and just thinking about that guy and the different ways that we are homeless and what we are resisting. I think he had a, a hook on what we're resisting better than I did in that moment, and it brought me back. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I uh, I've also noticed. My uh, my community of homeless people, or houseless, I consider myself houseless more than homeless, but uh, homeless people um, hanging out at this uh, market, Whole Foods Market, where we go sometimes to use the Wi-Fi, and they've got a microwave, and they've got like a hot water dispenser so I can make tea, um, and it says on their sign that it's like a, a community place. They even have an award that they're a community place, so... 
I'm hoping it's okay because I see other people in there too, like the same faces over and over. And the other day after one of those really bitterly cold nights, there was a, I think it was a woman, um, she was covering herself up with a bunch of blankets and she had a big trash bag that looked like it might have had her stuff in it that she was leaning on just to catch some sleep. Like Gumby said, she might have been up all night, couldn't get to sleep, and then during the daytime she could go into Whole Foods and just sit there, maybe get like a cup of hot water or something. Maybe somebody will buy her some food. And, uh, yeah, just noticing the camaraderie. I mean, hell, like Gumby said, the guy, the homeless guy giving us money and um, and just seeing the same faces over again, it's really changed how I feel about community. How's it going? And... Uh, Gumby, you had you had a different take on that. Yeah, I uh, actually like I want when I was thinking about this of the longer I'm a hobo, the more I consider like you know how I get kind of resentful about people. Like we've got our little places that we're kind of taking a bath and washing clothes, and um, it's it's tough like seeing people come like jogging through and everything, and they got their little earbuds on, and there's just people everywhere, and you know, more and more like, uh, you know, you're doing the hobo thing and it's kind of like, it's a threat, you know, like any of these people could just decide that you make them uncomfortable and they could call the authorities and the authorities will be on that person's side. So that's really hard. Um, and yeah, just all these, you know, like we got our little secret tweener spots and everything, and it always feels like it's being invaded. So I don't know. I get this feeling, um, being on the outside of civilization more and more of like, it's harder to, um, I don't know. You see people different, the people doing the nine to five, the people driving their cars and everything. Just our culture looks a lot uglier. The more I get outside of it, looking at it from that angle, you know, just the entitlement and the, the ignorance, you know, just what you like, literally ignorance, ignoring what you're ignoring, um, and what it does to you, you know, how it shapes you back and makes you really selfish. So, um, I also wanted to talk about some of our favorite recent gleanings, like what we've scavenged lately. That's been really good. Um, one of the things that I got really lucky and scavenged was a, um, a whole bag of groceries. I was walking down the sidewalk and, um, and I found like this bag that was just sitting there in a parking spot. So it was full of these groceries and like, you know, I, I noticed it was kind of unusual looking. It looked kind of full and I walked over there and picked it up and sure enough, there was like a bottle of wine in there. There was, what, what else? Two pounds of ground beef. Raspberries, blueberries. And smoked salmon. Smoked salmon. <laughs> feel like there was something else too but yeah it was a a big bag of groceries so that was my favorite like um scavenge thing and i've been learning about the word gleaning as i'm reading these books that a lot of people consider gleaning a good term because it you know gleaning was traditionally um if you go on a farm field and like pick up the the fruits and vegetables that other people haven't gathered yet that's called gleaning but it could be applied to dumpster diving or any kind of scavenging it's a bigger umbrella term than saying like scavenging Mm -hmm. maybe What's your favorite thing that you've gleaned lately? Well, I think it was pretty awesome. Uh, we 
I think Gumby's mentioned this about our dog food situation where we used to be able to stockpile dog food when we had the trailer, but now that we're in the minivan, there's less space to, to keep a supply of dog food or a supply. So um, the other day, we just happened to look in a dumpster behind a restaurant and our dog got like, what, like T-bone steak and, yeah. <laughs> and like a bunch of fried foods. And we also um, gleaned some things from a restaurant that had a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> I like wrapped up this piece of giant piece of kielbasa sausage and put it in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And I was happy to see you. And I saw a brand new notebook um, in a pile of junk beside the road the other day. And that's really nice because as we've talked about before, like preparing for these podcasts, we do it kind of old school. We write a whole bunch of notes in a notebook and, you know, Teresa steals pens from the gym. Mm. So we burn through that stuff. So it's always good to have a, a supply coming in of ink and paper. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and just, just then there was a little girl that had... Um, she had noticed something that we had gleaned or dumpster dived for my computer. And she was like, oh, that's really cool. And then when Gumby came back with the notebook, I said, Annie just found this. And she's like, oh, I always look in the garbage, but I haven't found anything. <laughs> it's like this eight-year-old girl. <laughs> so cute. And we were just kind of interrupted by the guy. I was just talking about the city worker that's like one of the guys that cleans up the parks and everything. We just ran into him again. And Teresa went over there and kind of yeah. talked to him and said, like, oh, we're doing a podcast. He's- but... He says hi, by the way. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so is there anything else you wanted to add? Because uh, you walked off when we were talking about, like, how, like, this hobo life affects how you see people. No, I just, I like it, too, because, I mean, just how that guy walked up and recognized us, and we recognized him, and he, uh, he you know, wished us well, asked us about what podcasts we're doing, and just said I, he hadn't seen us for a while, so he was wondering if we had gone off somewhere else and I said no we just make our rounds (laughs) that's another thing yeah I was kind of focused on how like um it brings my attention to what civilization looks like from the outside and how like we're in the woods and our little places washing clothes and everything and it just feels like god people are everywhere and they feel very intrusive you know just these oblivious people with their their like little you know outfits they wear when they go jogging with their earbuds (laughs) in but you know you just reminded me that it's like like a completely different paradigm. You've got a different set of people that, let's say, rub you the wrong way, that are sort of your antagonists. But then you've got other people that are invisible to you that suddenly become your protagonist, like this guy. You know, I'd notice him maybe like checking trash at a park or whatever, but I wouldn't feel like, you know, other than just waving at him as I walk by. But because of how we're living and he notices us, <laughs> like he's one of those people we're getting to know because of this way of we're living. So, yeah, I appreciate that. It's just kind of changes who you interact with never forget that the leader of the Cherokee people during the Trail of Tears John Ross was only one-eighth Cherokee he could have lived as a white man but chose to suffer in a culture he believed in rather than benefit from a culture he didn't. Wow. My goodness. Well, Gumby, before you run away, what are you reading lately? What I am reading right now... Or laterly. <laughs> this is what I've been reading laterly. And we're hobos. We can make up our own damn words. So screw you. That's true. Uh, the title of this book is The Luddites, Machine Breaking in Regency Plaza by... 
um, Malcolm Thomas. And, uh, yeah, it's it's not one of my favorite books. It's kind of dryly written, and if you're an anarcho-primitivist like me, what you always, like, hope from the Luddites is that they saw the danger of machinery and started breaking it like they fought the Industrial Revolution, which is kind of the propaganda and the hype. It's not really true. Um, what they were fighting – and it's cool what they were. You know, They were guys that weren't putting up with uh, the rich people kind of screwing them over, but the machines just happened to be something the rich people owned and were an easy target for them to kind of rebel against, you know? So when they broke the the frames and stuff of their their employers, it was wasn't so much that they hated the evils of technology or foresaw that it was going to be a, a big evil thing. It was just that you know like you want to you're going to hurt me, you're going to like not give me enough money to feed my family. Well, I'm going to hurt you, and here's this machine, and that's going to hurt you. That's going to set you back a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, yeah. I'm not really thrilled about the book I'm currently reading. What are you currently reading? Well, I am just starting the book Beggars of Life by Jim Tully. I think, um, man, it's too bad we didn't do the podcast while you were still reading that. What was it called? Going Green book? The essays? Essays. Uh, yeah, what about it? Well, the essays were really good. I remember um, Gumby. Oh, I read plenty of books I love. Gumby read this essay to me of someone who was studying the Aspen art out west and how people from the past would very gently write or draw, carve into the bark of the Aspen tree. And then as the tree grows, it gets deeper and and more visible. And I just thought that was really cool. And it was also talking about the handprints, the petroglyphs on rocks and everything. And it was, I really liked it. Yeah. And Teresa and I both prefer to read nonfiction. We, uh, well, I've always been a really avid reader. You said you're just kind of picking up reading a lot more, hanging out with me and being in the van and kind of... Yeah, I, I read a lot. Um, I think when I went to college, it killed my brain. But both of us enjoy like reading nonfiction and feeling like we're you know, learning about things that interest us. Yeah, and the book that I'm reading now, um, I guess I was going to introduce it as our guest because Gumby read it first, and he actually had a little bit more of a, a raggedy copy from the library. Yeah, we've now seen two copies of this book. When's the copyright? 1924. 1924. So this is a very old book. And the first one I got through Interlibrary Loan, it had a little note on it that said, Fragile, Handle with Care. So it's like the person who sent it to us recognized it as like, oh, I want you to take care of this book, Extra Special Care. And this book had a personality. I don't I don't know if I've run into a book that has such a personality. Um, it was missing a couple pages, which would usually piss me off if I got a book, <laughs> but it just added to this book's personality. I didn't even mind it missing a couple pages. Um, it's even aside from the content, which is beautifully written, the book itself is like, um, I don't know, animistically, it was so easy to feel and appreciate the life of this book. And you remember how, maybe you don't, but maybe you do, they had library cards in the book, like the checkout cards. And when I was younger, I got a kick out of using the rubber stamp to put the date on it when it was due. But these library cards in the back of his book, the one that um, Gumby's talking about from 1924, they had people's signatures and the dates that they checked the book out. And it was from like 1936, 1939, 1945, there was like a break when there was the war or whatever. People weren't wanting to read this book about hobos. They were busy trying to, you know, make do and survive. 
Yeah, it was magical, this book. And then Teresa, like, has ordered it, you know, for this podcast. She was like, man, I'd like to read something from that book. It's such an incredible book. And she gets this copy that is a different copy, but equally um, just extraordinary. Yeah, it's got, it is signed by the author. And I can't quite make out what the name is. It looks like maybe a Q, no, I don't know, Kital Riggs with my friendship and appreciation. And then sincerely, oh, sincerely, Jim Tully, Hollywood, California, spring of 1928. And there's this thing that's glued on the front cover that we just realized has Riggs written on it. Oh, it must be an L. I, don't, I still don't know what that name is, but it's L. Riggs. Even that. I mean, everything about this book, it's like the things you would do to your personal journal if you really were artistic. I mean, this book, wow. every time we come across a copy of this book, it's like showered with love. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel like, I, I mean, I don't want to mess it up. This one isn't as fragile as the copy Gumby had. And I struggle with like... You know, I love a book. Sometimes we get something that's digital. You know, we download it and read it, and I'm glad that we can. And I also really appreciate how uh, supposedly, you know, and sometimes the things that seem eco-friendly when you track down all the things involved, they're not actually. But I like the idea that you're not cutting down trees um, to make a book. But on the other hand, man, I got to say, there's something about finding a book, especially a book like this, that there's just the smell of it, the feel of it in your hands, the sitting in the sun or under a shade tree, depending on the weather, and reading from the pages of a book. And this this old print and everything, um, and these old pages feel so different. That's just such a sensual experience in itself. Indeed. And... Again, like we've been talking so much about this book, if you happen to be able to interlibrary loan it, you might get one of the copies that we've talked about. Um, But if you don't, if you can't, on our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com, we've got a list of books now recommended reading. And I actually found a digital copy of this book. So it might not be, the the links might not be the greatest, um, like the ability to read it might might not be the best text size or whatever, font size, but you can get the idea. Um, So I wanted to read just a passage from the very end of this book, and hopefully I'll do it justice. So this is Beggars of Life by Jim Tully. The imaginative young vagabond quickly loses the social instincts that help to make life bearable for other men. Always he hears voices calling in the night, from faraway places where blue waters lap strange shores. He hears birds singing and crickets chirping, alluring roundelay. He sees the moon, yellow ghost of a dead planet haunting the earth. Traveling a brutal road, his moral code becomes heavy and he often throws it away. Civilization never quite restores all of it to him, which of course may not be as tragic as it sounds. Gorky, the brilliant ex-tramp, returned to the road again for a year. Few people understood the reason. I did. It was the caged eagle returning to the mountains of its youth for a last look at the carefree life it had known. It remained a year and found that the vast and lonely places were the same, but the blood had slowed around the eagle heart and it flew back to the valley again, wearier than before. 
the last illusion gone. There are those who have solutions for all the ills of humanity. There are people who love the mob in the abstract, but keep away from the scum of life themselves. I have never known a great idealist who had a profound knowledge of life. There is a blessed something that blurs their eyes when they look at the viciousness of it all. They turn away from it and blubber platitudes like blind men in a forest, listening to birds and hearing not the reptiles underneath. They cannot see life around them, their eyes being fastened on the great dream ahead, a few million years after they are rotten. Some idealists are selfish as individuals, but lovers of the mob. And who can really love a mob? Evolution helps the mob. One can only help the individual. And I think I'll end it there. But it's very poetic, and Tully talks about his life on the road and his like love interests, his experiences, meeting other hobos on the road. And it's just so captivating. I highly, highly recommend reading. Yeah, it's been a long time since I read a book that engaged me so much. Um, and like I said, we like to read nonfiction, but it's got all the beauty and poetry of... Uh, Reminds me a little bit of like Steinbeck or Mark Twain, um, but it's his personal account of his youth as a hobo. He grew up as a hobo, so it's just an incredible thing. Um, and another thing that I read like a few books back was John Zerzan's uh, Running on Emptiness, I think it was called, and there was an essay in there where he talks about how time affects our culture, and I've been thinking about that a lot. Like uh, Teresa found this pod what was it, like a couple months ago, maybe? Probably. <laughs> and, you know, instead of just telling her what it was, I was like, well, you know, if you really want to know, why don't you hold on to that pod? And sooner or later, you're going to find out. And, you know, every now and then on a walk, like, we'll see a pod. And it's just drawn her attention to the, all the different pods and, you know, looking at them closely and considering the pod she's holding on to. And um, it's really opened up instead of just some name, some way to file it away in our intellect a avenue of communication, you know, to really get to know all plants and to like let the plants tell her. And one of the things I was thinking of with John Zerzan and, and talking about how, you know, he was saying that one of the first things you have to do to create a culture like ours to impose civilization on somebody is this impose this construct of time that we have, this linear time. Um, and because Teresa and I don't have to, you know, have a job like that, that we are around each other in the way we are, we get to kind of move that time aside. And I thought about what an organic way to learn. And actually, I didn't know what the pod was anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty easy to get out of the way of that. Um, but, you know, I think about the way people must have learned in indigenous tribes, you know, the coyote teaching, just really like letting people make their mistakes, no hurry, no, no schedule. Um, and how time gets in the way of that, how time really is something that, uh, impedes and constricts us and, and further numbers. Um, I've mentioned before in a podcast, and I think I got this from Derek Jensen in one of his books, but there was this tribe somewhere in South America and a newspaper wrote an article about them when there was some kind of uh, confrontation with loggers or something. And they were sort of talking about how stupid the tribe is by saying they, they can't even like add one and one or yeah, they don't even know one and one makes two. 
And he was describing how in this tribe, they didn't believe, they didn't see the universe that way. If you hold up both your fingers, they're not exactly alike. To them, it makes no sense to say one and one. There's no two things that are exactly alike that make two of the same thing. There's not a single thing that is the same as another single thing in this whole vast, mysterious, diverse universe. So to them, a number sucks the power out of something. Mm. It's a way of abstracting it, objectifying it, of uh, making it a dead thing. So they see the world as a tracker, as someone with acute attention to detail, noticing every scar, every curve, every nuance. Um, But we dismiss that because the numbers blind us. The numbers help us do science, do science, and invent technology that does not serve us, that just kind of gnashes the beautiful wilderness around us, the nature around us, and its metal jaws. Um, but that construct of time, those numbers imposed on us, you know, when you get rid of that, what a beautiful spaciousness it is. You know, suddenly I have a some a, a somewhat deeper understanding of like the Zen master who describes like, you know, eternity can be in a moment because I'm not measuring it. You know, I mean, a moment. No, that's exactly 2.5 seconds long. That's not eternity. <laughs> eternity is clearly longer. Um, But again, that's that poison of time, and especially the linear time that we're taught. Everything has to improve every year. Technology has to improve. Um, A president has to change every four to eight years. You know, this linear idea that there was a beginning, we're traveling down it, and we're headed towards the crashing end because we don't know when it's going to be, but we know that it's got to end. But so many indigenous peoples, you know, in their organic way, didn't think so much in terms of that. Time was more cyclical. It was more seasonal. And, um, yeah, I just really encourage you to, to check out that essay and, and consider John Zerzan's thoughts on time. Um, it's got me thinking a lot. So that's something that I read that when I put the book down, you know, has popped up in my head um, over and over to, can, to, to turn that over. And one more thing I'd like to add about just from my experience of the uh, the pod that I found, it's become something that I, I mean, I still kind of want to know if I'm right. I, I have an idea of what it is, but it's become more than that. It's become like this connection with finding the pods and looking around and noticing all the different types of vines that it might have come from. So it it's opened my eyes more to the world instead of just at this narrow view of what this one thing might be called in science mm-hmm. or in English or Latin or whatever. Never forget that the very technology you're waiting on to save us is the same technology that brought us into a situation we need saving from and has always come with unforeseen, deleterious side effects. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're having way too much fun with that. Um, Speaking of fun, when we were researching for our president's podcast, sometimes there are just pieces of history that I don't know how to fit it in, but I really want to share it. And this next piece of history is a true story, and it's amazing. (laughs) It's known as the Molasses Disaster. When she first started telling me about this, I was like, what? Bullshit. (laughs) So the Great Molasses Flood, the Boston Molasses Disaster, or the Great Boston Molasses Flood, 
or some combination of those. It occurred in January of 1919 in Boston, Massachusetts, when, oh my gosh, 2,300,000 U.S. gallons, which equates to 24 million pounds of molasses, burst out of its holding container, which was like a big tank that was up on stilts. And it proceeded to flow with the velocity, with the speed of 35 miles per hour at a height of 25 feet. A 25-foot wave of molasses coming through the streets of Boston. (laughs) And it swept away. Cars, streetcars, buildings were ruined, and people people's lives were lost, as well as horses and probably other things. It says that there was a thunderclap-like bang and a machine gun-like sound as the rivets shot out of the tank. Um, There were people swept off their feet, and once the molasses started to cool, because it was in January, the people, they were like, they were drowning in molasses, and then they were stuck in it. Um, like so many flies on sticky fly paper. Now, I'm not trying to make light of people dying. I just, it says about 150 people were injured and 21 people, along with several horses, were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses or by the debris that it carried within. There were nurses from the, uh, I think it was the Salvation Army, that tried to dive into, oh, I'm sorry, the Red Cross. Some nurses from the Red Cross dived into the molasses. Um, There were 116 uh, recruits from some ship that was offshore, and when they heard the explosion, um, they, they came off of the boat, and they started to try to dig people out of the sticky mess to get to survivors. And cleanup crews worked, you know, round the clock, but... Everyone started tracking this molasses everywhere everywhere around Boston. So wherever you stepped, it was sticky. Wherever you touched railings, it was sticky. And it was noted that Boston in this area smelled uh, a certain sweet smell for decades after the disaster. The smell of molasses remained for decades a distinctive, unmistakable atmosphere of Boston. And that is history. Never forget Moses, Gautama Buddha, Jesus Christ, King Philip, Chief Powhatan, Tecumseh, Ned Ludd and the Luddites, Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, Henry Barry Lowry and the Lowry Gang, Newton Knight, Henry David Thoreau. Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Geronimo, Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Tick Quang Duck, Che Guevara, the American Indian Movement, Freegans, Theodore J. Kaczynski, Colin Kaepernick, never forget the rebels and outlaws who said, No, we don't have to take this shit. It doesn't have to be this way. (laughs) Oh, 
I'm getting good at that. I might have to do like some beatnik poetry professionally. You might, uh, you might do that like a busking thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk a little bit about Buddhism because Buddhism isn't something I uh, go into much depth about, but actually was a big part of my life for a while. One thing, like I read Daniel Quinn and Derek Jensen, and I think they were both too quick to dismiss Buddhism. As I've heard their objections to it, I uh, think they have a point, but they um, didn't dig very deep into it to my way of thinking. Daniel Quinn, um, his objection to it seems to be that Buddhism, like all religions from our civilization, um, implies a philosophy that we're not from here. We're from someplace else, and he contrasts it with animism. My Buddhism has not led me to that truth, and I don't really see that necessarily in, like, what I read about Buddha, Siddhartha. Um, The interpretations that come later of all religions, you know, of course, they get skewed in all kinds of ways. But Buddhism actually was the original thing that made me question my sense of self and opened me to the ideas that... I have now kind of filled with animism. So it's it's provided a good foundation for me that I've built a lot of my animistic views on. Um, Jensen, his critique of Buddhism seems to be that I think he's just known some Buddhists that were assholes. And uh, I mean, <laughs> fair enough. yeah, fair enough. But uh, it's apathy. You know, I, I've seen this too. You know, a lot of Buddhists use their highfalutin Buddhist uh, interpretations as reasons to kind of not do anything, to not be outraged about things. And because they're not outraged, they're not motivated to act. You know, they act like, oh, things will work themselves out. And they totally don't accept responsibility for their part. You know, things are working themselves out because they are actively fueling these things. Um, But again, I don't think that's intrinsic to the Buddhist philosophy. I think that's the way it's interpreted. So I wanted to talk about some of the things that Buddhism did to help me. Like I had social anxiety um, really bad, I don't know, several years ago. I don't count the years. I don't know how long ago it's been now. But when it first came on, I was pretty much incapacitated. I started living out of my car and couldn't work, couldn't be around people. And it was Buddhism that first gave me the idea of what has been called by at least one author, Zen cooking. That in every moment, there's nothing ever that is wrong, that goes bad. That the only thing that's gone bad is you had an expectation, and then reality did not in fact meet your expectation. But that expectation was skewed in the first place. So your mind is the thing that makes things feel like they've gone bad. What if every moment is completely full completely perfect. What if? And Zen cooking is the idea that in any moment, the ingredients for whatever you need to do, whatever needs to happen are right there. You just need to train your mind to recognize them because every moment is full. And so the world, your life, the universe is your Zen kitchen and your life is the Zen recipe. And you just look around for the ingredients. You're never at a lack. And when I started doing wilderness survival, You know, I found the same kind of thinking was very helpful there. You know, instead of like, damn, you know, I don't have a microwave. I don't have a stove. Well, look around. What do you have? You know, like learn how to use those things. Can you speak to the wood enough to make a a friction fire set and, you know, have a fire? So that really helped me. And another thing I learned from Buddhism was the power of mind and imagination. Um, 
For instance, I came across the idea that, you know, we tend to focus on the waves. Like in our culture, we're focused exclusively on the waves, the surface of our lives, which you might call akin to the the surface of an ocean. So a wave rises up and then it crashes. And it's a very insecure place to be when all you see is the surface of the ocean because your life is a wave. Your partner's life is a wave. Your dog's life is a wave. Your career is a wave. Your car is a wave. And each one of these things, it rises up, it's at peak performance, and then it crashes and it diminishes and it scares you because you see waves disappear. That person you know, they're dead. They're gone. Where did they go? It's scary because you know the same fate awaits you and you're terrified. And you compare yourself to other waves. Here's this great big wave over here. Why is it so successful? Why does this wave have so much majesty? Why is your wave just kind of, you know, not catching the light the same way? This wave is reflecting the whole glory of the sun's beauty. And here's your wave in the shadow of that wave. And it's kind of gray. And you, you just feel inadequate. And this way of looking at things feeds so much suffering. But what's forgotten is the true nature of what we are, which is the ocean. So a wave, when it rises up, it doesn't need to feel in contrast to the big wave that's catching the sun's glory because, in fact, they're two expressions of the same thing, and both of them are temporary, and they both go to the same place and are the exact same thing, which is that ocean. When something dies, it's not lost. Where does it go? Where was it ever going to go? It goes back to where it came from, the ocean. So that has been something a philosophy you might say, a way of using my imagination that has helped me profoundly to ground myself in times when my anxiety was about to just run me completely off the rails, and still does. You know, I think about the state of our culture and, you know, the state of the world and all the tragedies, and I don't mean to ignore the waves, because the waves, depending on how you are in this world, they need your attention. There are ways to be that are important. But you don't need to get run completely off the rails and completely driven insane by forgetting the ocean, that there is another level of reality. I used to hear it in Buddhism contrasted with relative reality to absolute reality. It's not that one is fake and one is real. They're both real. And the trick is to balance both, to recognize that there is no tragedy, no horror, no big thing unfolding, that everything is ultimately, it's going to be all right. That's a fact. That's not just a little platitude. Um, In this vast universe of these dancing atoms and energies ebbing and flowing and constantly changing, it's all going to be all right. But that can also fuel your courage in the world of waves. You know, since you're already temporary, you're just a wave, why not put all your energy into something you really believe in? You don't have to go go along with things you don't believe in. Take a risk. Make your wave fun. Make it glorious. Make it something you can invest in. Another way that uh, I ran into something called broken glass sin, and this was another way of using my imagination that was really profound. And the idea is that you know the fate of every glass. When you have a glass in front of you, you know that one day, no matter what, it's going to be broken. That is the fate of every glass. Um, But instead of always worrying about it because you know its fate, let that make you appreciative of it. Wow, here's another day it's not broken. I know it's going to be, but not today, not right now. I'm drinking something out of it. How fortunate am I? It hasn't met its fate yet. 
and how that can change the way you look at everything. You know, in this world where we have entropy, where things are wearing out constantly, everything, your car, the fate is going to be it breaks down. One day it's going to be immobile. Every car. But maybe not today. And how lucky were you when you got to the end of your day that your car served you one more day, took care of you? Your relationship. Every relationship will end one way or the other. One of you will die. Maybe you'll part ways. But maybe it's intact today. And how much more special does it make it to remind yourself that because it's mortal and short-lived, that it lasted another day, that you have it on this special day that's unrepeatable? Um, This way of thinking has really had a profound effect on me and helps me in some dark times. So these are things that I think Quinn and Jensen both have overlooked um, that aren't exclusive to Buddhism, but that are in Buddhism and that are gifts Buddhism can offer. thought I had something else to say about the broken glass then. You told me about that when we were talking about Sherlock one time. Yeah, like... You know, I, I've had relationships that have ended, and I was really broken up about them. But studying Buddhism taught me that uh, what the problem was is I had an expectation of how that was supposed to be, and it did not meet the way it was supposed to be. So it ended, and it felt like something had gone wrong. But what if that relationship was a beautiful two-year relationship? And what if it was also full of challenges, fights, disagreements? It was a challenging two-year relationship. Is a challenge necessarily a bad thing? Only if you think you're not supposed to be challenged that way. Again, it, it turns it back to your mind. Why do you have that expectation? I don't know. No reason. <laughs> like that movie we saw, Rubber. Mm. Homage to no reason. Another thing that I really enjoyed was from the Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. This might have come from the Dalai Lama. Um, but he said, consider... And again, you don't have to believe in reincarnation, but just imagine that you've been reincarnated countless times, countless times, and that in all these incarnations that you have been with these different, well, in Buddhism, there isn't an immortal soul, but these different selves, these different uh, spirits that trade around, you know, different relationships. And because you've been through so many countless lives that every life form you see, every blade of grass, every person, every dog, every tree has been your mother in one life or another. At some point in all these countless incarnations, you were helpless. You were completely reliant on the love of this other being. And the only reason you got to have that life, that experience, was because they took care of you when you could not take care of yourself. Now forget for a moment whether you believe this, but pretend. Go out there for five minutes and pretend this is true. And my God, you will have done yourself a favor for those five minutes because the way you see the world is going to be so fucking magical (laughs) to imagine that that kind of love is out there and has been shared with every living thing you encounter. So this is the power of your mind. This is the power of your imagination. And again, you know, doesn't matter whether you believe it. You can exist in a world that is bursting at the seams with love, with understanding, with uh, setting aside your expectations just by the mental exercises like the ones I just described. Um, I kind of encountered this a little bit at Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School. Teresa makes fun of me that I memorized that whole thing. I remember when it used to seem really long. Rolls off the tongue now. Mm. But he does this meditation, and he calls it a pain sequence, where if you have a pain in your body... You picture it, give it a shape, like maybe this pain feels like a triangle, maybe a yellow triangle. 
you turn it into a ball, you imagine that triangle becoming a, a circle, and then shrink it, 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 until it falls out of your body and goes back into the earth to be healed. Now, I have had some really incredible um, times when that worked and plenty of times when that failed as well, and times when it worked for a moment and it came back. But one of the things it works so consistently for is sneezing. When I first started meditating and going to meditation halls, I would uh, often like, you know, have a sneeze come up and I didn't want to interrupt the meditation. I would use the pain sequence. It would consistently work. I could make a sneeze go away. So I developed the super mutant power of controlling my sneeze. <laughs> um, Thanks, Tom Brown. Yep. And like taking baths in cold water, one of the ways I make that bearable is I've learned not to fight it. Imagine I'm a ghost. Imagine I'm Iceman or a ghost that has no uh, body, that the, I am the cold water. And by compl- that, that is just a little imagination trick. And what it does to my mind is it removes the fight. I'm not fighting the cold water anymore. And just like Buddhism teaches, the cold itself isn't the problem so much as fighting the cold, the expectation I'm not supposed to be cold. You'll find very often that your life is actually not in jeopardy many times when you're feeling over-the-top alarmed, and it comes back to your expectations. So when I imagine I'm Iceman, that I am the cold, I'm made of ice, I relish this cold water, um, it can set that expectation aside just enough that I can take a, a really cold bath and find some enjoyment in it and then lay in the sun and realize, like, wow, that was an experience that I've opened myself to that if I didn't gain some control over my mind, it would have been a door shut for me. Sometimes when I got to take a crap, and I've been doing this for years. <laughs> Teresa laughs, but this is a handy thing to have, especially when you're a hobo and you don't have a bathroom right down the hall. You know, I'll have to take a crap, and sometimes I have to hold it until I get to a a place that I can take a crap. And sometimes it's a close call. You know, I'm clenching, (laughs) and it's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, please, please, please. If I imagine that my body is made out of metal, and I've, like, turned like a knob, you know, that just shut a valve, and I'm thinking, I'm even saying it to myself, metal, 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 metal. You know, and I have that kind of machine-like control of my bowels. I can keep from shitting myself, and that's a superpower. I don't care what you say. You haven't shit yourself yet, at least not that you've told me. Yeah, and she she doesn't know how close I've come. (laughs) So, yeah, that's something I learned from Buddhism, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, Now, here's what turned me off to Buddhism, and I still love Buddhism. But again, the thing that gets kind of messed up is the interpretation. Same thing happened to Christianity. Same thing happens to all kinds of shit. Anarchism. God damn, I hate anarchists. But I love anarchism. So, (laughs) anyway, um, I would hear a lot of white people gather around that were middle class, upper class that would drive up in their expensive cars from their expensive houses and say, no, no, it's not a problem to own material goods. The problem is attachment to material goods. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, what the hell did the Buddha renounce his whole kingdom for and live like a monk, you know, out there with nothing and, and insist that everybody that followed him did the same thing if that was not important. Are they so much more elevated than the monks who followed the Buddha himself that they actually don't need to actually like do away with the materialism because it's the attachment and that's what they're working on. I wanted to go down and burn every one of their houses to the ground <laughs> and then ask them like, well, how, how attached do you feel at the moment? Um, but that hypocrisy started turning me off to the Buddhist community. Um, also, the recognition as I was exploring 
um, homelessness and the people that would be generous and give you food. Nobody ever goes to a Buddhist temple for handouts. <laughs> you can go to a church and often get food, get blankets, meet nice people who ask, what do you need? Not Buddhist. And believe me, compassion, if you haven't studied Buddhism yourself, is a huge part of Buddhism, especially most of the Buddhism we see here in this country, which is Mahayana Buddhism. Bodhisattva, it's supposed to be all about compassion. And yet, you know, you get all these like people that just are kind of zoned out on their own sense of enlightenment. And I never see anybody like handing out boxes of food from a Buddhist temple or any kind of like, you know, you look up food pantries. I've yet to be directed anywhere in the country to a Buddhist temple. That started turning me off. Well, they certainly send me requests for money. I went to a Buddhist temple like maybe three, four times in my life in the United States here. And uh, yeah, they'll send these really fancy like see-through plastic envelopes with a full color brochure of what they're planning to do with all the money that they take in. And it's usually creating a whole new building so that they could have more people come there so that they could send out requests for money. And I'm not saying like any of these is strict. You might know a Buddhist temple that does, you know, offer food, but it's so rare. But that, that whole picture, that, that discrepancy was just something that I was, uh, not appreciating. Um, pretentious white guys with ponytails. And I'm sorry if you're a pretentious white guy with a ponytail. You might be like a really cool pretentious white guy with a ponytail. But you might my be listening to this podcast. Yeah. Maybe you're a white guy with a ponytail who isn't pretentious. Maybe you're a pretentious white guy that doesn't even have a ponytail. <laughs> but I just saw an inordinate amount of pretentious white guys with ponytails that would sit there with these expressions of, you know, kind of their Mona Lisa grin and their sleepy eyes and looking around, you know, like... State of bliss. They were above it all. And oh my God, once again, you know, I just wanted to grab one of their ponytails and yank them and watch that that expression just leave their face for a moment and see who they really are, <laughs> just for a second. Um I came to believe that Buddhism is about facing reality, you know, like being who you are. And if you're vulgar right now, if you're like dealing with some shit, not pretending like you're not, that's just, that's not what Buddhism is about. And that wasn't my interpretation of Buddhism. So I considered myself a Buddhist for quite a long time after I stopped going to the temples and everything, because I still found value in the teachings. I just hated the interpretations. And one time I volunteered at a Buddhist summer camp. Um, It was understood I wasn't going to get paid, so I didn't mind not getting paid. But one day in particular that we were outside and the line had separated a little bit. I was with the kids in the back and the the head priestess with this group of kids had had rounded the corner. It began to rain and it's summer. So I'm with the kids and I'm like, oh, that feels so good. And we're out there kind of lingering a little bit, playing in the rain, you know, like enjoying it. I'm encouraging them to go slower and feel the rain and appreciate it. As soon as we round that corner, this... uh, you know, otherwise very Zen Buddhist priestess comes rushing out, obviously agitated, and is disturbed because these wet kids are supposed to go and sit on the meditation, pristine meditation cushions, and ask, how come I didn't hurry the kids inside? And, you know, I'm just like, what I'd been studying is that everything is the Buddha. Each one of those raindrops was the Buddha. Am I supposed to rush those kids away from the Buddha so they could go meet the Buddha? Um, It just wasn't making a lot of sense to me. And I told her, yeah, getting kids out out of the rain isn't really what I do. <laughs> um, and finally, I remember my last morning, 
which was that same meditation hall, which was extravagant. And they were always talking about building it bigger. I mean, it was just huge, fine wood floors and a big window. And, you know, if you didn't think about what went into that, it was an admittedly beautiful place um, that I'd already gotten in trouble to a couple times going in barefoot because they want to keep it a certain way. But it was this beautiful spring morning. (laughs) And I'm about to go inside one more time. You know, everybody else is going inside. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? You know, like what is inside this building that I'm after that I can't find easier and more of outside? And that day I went in their little garden there and I sat and I meditated instead of going inside and doing the the formal meditation. And that was the last time I went to a Buddhist center because that taught me something. Um, And that was the beginning of my path to animism, I would say, although that's kind of been toying with me for, for many years. But to me, it's a combination. Like I didn't abandon Buddhism. I abandoned the name Buddhism, but so much of what I learned from Buddhism, I am really thankful for. And I wanted to express some of the reasons for that here. Um, since anything goes, you know, this is something I probably won't be talking about in another episode. And one thing I wanted to share was something I wrote when I was, um, more involved in Buddhism. And it's sort of a guided meditation. One of the things I like to consider is the profane versus the sacred. You know, I really don't like it when people separate them. You know, like, oh, we don't we don't say that here. Or, you know, Ugh, you know, dog shit is vulgar and and you know, the gong from Tibet or from Nepal mm-hmm. is the profa- the sacred thing. To me, an understanding of sacred is to find it is kind of the uh, oh what do you call that Buddhism that's like you know that it's all about that it's uh, tantra you know like and that's a really hard discipline I'm not saying like oh you're you're into tantra if you do this but it's something that is explored in tantra which is taking the profane and finding the sacred in it the things other Buddhists wouldn't do um, so that's sort of the spirit in which this is written. So, find a relaxing posture to be in. (laughs) You can keep your eyes open or close your eyes. Breathe in, breathe out. Become mindful of your surroundings. And I'm going to tell you about wiping your ass, Zen style. Oh, God. (laughs) Mindfulness isn't something to be rushed through or towards. It can and should be done at all moments and during all activities. For what are the bulk of our lives if not mostly a series of seemingly mundane moments? If we don't learn how to fill the moment of washing the dishes, walking to our cars, and wiping our asses with everything we are, (laughs) our whole being, then we've fallen into the trap. And the great event, the big important thing we're waiting for, is always somewhere out there on the horizon and always out of reach. I believe that Zen practitioners are folders, not crumplers. Crumpling projects a rushed mindset, a disregard for the resources that went into that toilet paper, a lack of care. To carefully fold your toilet paper into the least amount of squares necessary to accomplish your goal, cleaning your ass and keeping shit off of your hand, is an exercise in mindfulness. Let gratitude for the soft teepee arise naturally. After all, there's nothing that entitles you to it. Toilet paper is a wonderful blessing. Next, one should allow all of their senses to come alive, awake, as take their squares and lovingly but forcefully press them between their cheeks, (laughs) wiping in a smooth upward motion. 
Feel that soft toilet paper. As you attune, you'll be able to differentiate the sliding feeling of needing more wipes from the increased friction of finishing. Don't rush. This experience is at least as important as anything else that you do with your time and deserves to be honored, savored. Check the toilet paper after each wipe, (laughs) allowing the acknowledgement that this shit is a miracle. The food that led to it is a tremendous gift, and your body is a marvelous machine to accomplish such a task. Also, take a moment to be humbled. No matter how athletic you are or how, how proud of your fleeting beauty you may be, your aging body is full of bad smells and grotesque fluids needed to run properly. And how. It is a vehicle. It is not you. Also, checking after each wipe encourages conservation and a non-wasteful attitude, stopping when you are done. It took the whole universe to create that toilet paper, exploding supernovas to create the elements that comprise it, old trees, earth, sky, inventors upon inventors. Finally, take a deep breath and give thanks as you pull up your pants. (laughs) You are a, a ridiculous, miraculous creature. Laugh hard and don't miss a moment. So I hope you benefited from that. <laughs> wow. Zen reading by Gumby Montgomery. Oh, that took it to a whole different level. Never forget that Jesus, Buddha, St. Francis, Gandhi, and Mother Teresa all renounced wealth, home, and the latest technologies of their time. Coincidence? Boom. All right, so here's something I wanted to share as well that I will never share in another podcast. <laughs> when you I was tried. In, I did? You tried that one time. Oh, boy. When I was in jail, um, <laughs> when I was younger, the only thing these bastards would let you read was the goddamn Bible. Oh. Um, and I was really pissed. So I had this little New Testament, and eventually I got bored enough sitting in there in this damn cage that started leafing through it. That's when I came across a part of the Bible that still to this day remains by far my favorite part of the Bible, and I find so much wisdom in it. I feel like if that one part was isolated and a religion was based on it, you would have such a profoundly spiritual people. Um, Everything else to me just almost pollutes it. And that is St. Matthew chapter 6. So I wanted to read that. And I felt kind of funny checking out the Bible from the library. And uh, I think they thought it was kind of strange to see me come up there and like, (laughs) so we're going to find the New Testament. But here we go. St. Matthew chapter 6. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now, doesn't that sound like a contrast to every damn church you've ever been in? You know, like, I love that this is all about, like, your personal relationship with the sacred, the divine, you know, call it God if you want. Even in the Buddhist temple, they talked, in my Buddhist temple, they talked about karma points. Yeah, 
And I like that it's saying if you like are doing this to like get the reward of people, well, that is your reward. Like that's your reward spent. But if you want a deeply spiritual reward, it's not about trying to get the, to impress the people around you. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking." I love that, the vain repetitions, you know, it's saying like, not just dead words, not ceremonies that don't mean anything, but like, speak from your heart. It doesn't matter if you say something over and over and over, say it once and mean it. It's got more power than if you repeat it. Hmm. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if, you forgive, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, setting aside, you know, a lot of the things that have bad connotations with those of us who aren't Christians, if you think about what's underneath those words, that prayer is a beautiful thing. Just give us our daily bread for the for today. It's such a simple um, request, you know, such a simple wish. It's all about simplicity. This whole thing is beautiful, and it's just different ways of looking at that simplicity and that humility. I feel like Peace Pilgrim would be all about this this part. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Lay not, and this is my favorite part, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. You know, and I interpret that in heaven, in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, you know, not the things that are materialism. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Buddhism 101 right there, mindfulness. Uh, Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. Your thoughts determine your reality. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now, to me, this is a highly rebellious statement. You know, mammon, to me, is what the cops are, the politicians, the laws that are imposed on me that I know aren't good for the earth. For what I perceive as God is that raw, beautiful nature out there, the things man did not build with his own two hands, because that's mammon, and you can't serve one or the other. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? 
Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And to me, this is, you know, um, it reminds me of the hobos. You know, worry not for the morrow. Who does this? I've only read of a few people, and they are profoundly incredible people who truly don't worry for the morrow. Peace Pilgrim, yeah, that's the first one that pops in my mind. St. Francis, another one. And these people across the board are people who have opened doors to divine experiences. I feel like this right here is the key to a a divine life. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, you, O ye of little faith? You know, such an appreciation of beauty here, Um, natural beauty. You know, what what could you possibly buy or be sold that's going to beat the beauty of a flower? And aren't you, like, on the same ground as these things? Aren't you a creature of nature as well? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or where shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself." Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, when I read that in jail, right after I got out of jail is when I first took off to be a hobo. Mm. Partly inspired by that thing. I read that chapter over and over. Wow. And to me, it was it, it opened a door of what you might call a path of resistance, a path of rebelliousness from our culture. Because I realized everything it warns about is the trademark of our culture yeah. and most churches within that culture. That this chapter, and Daniel Quinn actually talks about this. If you read Ishmael, he specifically talks about this chapter. So I found that interesting that, you know, as he's leafing through whatever he studies, that this one jumped out at him too. Like, whoa. Like, he, he I think he talks about even St. Francis gathered into barns and everything. I, th- I think that's what he said. And he's saying, like, you know, people just ignore this chapter. That's the way I felt about it mm-hmm. on my own when I read it. And, uh... Yeah, I just wanted to share that. I thought that was, and I still think it is the best part of the Bible, and there's so much in there. I could read that like over and have a whole different set of uh, insights based on on that passage. Mm. I really liked that. Now, where are we? Never forget, every politician runs on a platform of... change, which indicated that no one in our culture feels adequately served or content right now. Digest that for a moment. That was a forceful play there. I'm getting good at this hobo uh, stove drumming. Wait until we listen to it. So now I want to share five things. I When I was 20 years old, I turned 20, and I thought that was kind of a momentous time, you know, oh, the, the two-decade mark. 
felt and a long time ago. I wrote down in my journal five things that I thought I yeah it was five things that I thought I'd learned, and um, I want to revisit those things because I think I did pretty good because I still feel like I can make a good argument for all five of these things. First thing I wrote. We're all here to learn about the same thing in this life. You know, I, I, I would hear people say, like, what, what do you think life is about? Why are we here? And I thought, I think we're here to all learn about relationship. So, you know, I believe we're all under this illusion that we are this fractured sense of self. You know, again, going back to the Buddhism, Buddhism 101, that the root of all suffering is a misunderstanding of what yourself is, uh, an attachment to a false sense of self. So we're meant to mend that, and relationship is the way we mend it. It might be a relationship with another person. It might be a relationship with your enemy, with your lover, with uh, nature, with God. Um, But we're all here to study some form of relationship. The second thing I wrote is our entire life is an ongoing conversation with God. And I wrote God in parentheses. I'm kind of sketchy about that word because it's such a loaded word in our culture. Um, but yeah, I would realize like I'm talking to somebody and I'll have an interesting conversation. Then I turn on the TV and lo and behold, there's a show that has something to say about that very conversation. And then maybe like the next book I read, wow, what are the odds? It has something to say about that thing. Um, so it occurred to me, what if your entire life, another way of looking at it is it's all the same conversation. Like, what if whatever we call God, that spirit that moves in all things, that great mystery, is speaking to us through a billion different mouths on a hundred different breezes? It's written every book that you've ever read, and it orchestrates the symphony of events. So you read certain books at certain times, and even the TV show lineup. It's, again, you know, don't separate the profane from the sacred. A lot of people, you know, like, well, fucking Jerry Springer isn't sacred. What if he is? He does have those final thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) What if everything is sacred and it's the same divine conversation? And again, going back to that Buddhist thing, like, what if you just imagine for a moment that that's happening and pay attention to what you feel in your body? I mean, I feel a difference when I even consider the idea. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. The third thing was all truth is paradoxical. I started realizing that every great truth that I would come across, um, if the paradox was not understood, then it was divisive and it was actually not a truth. For instance, life is completely irrelevant and meaningless. There's this huge, vast universe, and if the whole earth exploded, what would it matter? You know how many planets are probably out there? I mean, we can see how many stars are out there, suns, and we know a lot of them have planets around them, and they're all made of atoms. So even if we talk about the Earth exploding, the atoms haven't gone anywhere. They're just going to reconfigure. And who cares how many years it takes? You know, we, are, we only worry about, oh, it's going to take a thousand years for, you know, plastic to do this or whatever because of the, the length of our lifespans. Do you think the universe cares about a thousand years? I mean, that's something we're imposing. So that's one level of reality. But don't get too apathetic yet because it's, it's divisive. To really understand the truth, you've got to understand the paradox. And that is that everything is precious. Even in this whole vast universe of unimaginable time, no single minute is repeatable. Every word that comes out of your mouth shapes the future. 
that word goes into another person's ears. It affects their thoughts, which affects their actions, which affect the actions of three other people, etc. The whole future is shaped by one sentence that you decided either to come out of your mouth or to not come out of your mouth. Every life is precious beyond measure. Because if every word is precious, if every minute is unrepeatable, how many minutes make up a lifespan? How many words come out of the average person? That is also true. So, again, it's that wave-ocean duality, you know, dancing in both realities, not getting stuck in one, because to get stuck in one is not the truth. Any truth, you can test it to see if you have the truth, if you have found the paradox. If you haven't found the paradox, I would bet you have not found the truth, only a little piece of it. And a piece of a truth can be misleading. Four, stories are literally the fabric of reality. It is what the universe is made of. You can't find anything that is not made out of a story. Um, and my thought on that was that if you don't tell a story, nothing can exist. The only way you can even recognize that there's a tree next to you is to have some interaction with it. I saw a tree. I saw something that maybe I choose not to call a tree. That one sentence is a very simple story. The story is what anchors you. The story is the thing that it's made of. Without the story, there's no way to for it to exist or for you to exist or for you to acknowledge any interaction or for anything. Anything that you can conceive of is made of story. Um, yeah. <laughs> that one's kind of a hard one for me to delve into. And finally, the fifth one is kind of uh, not my favorite one. But I had a lot of friends that said they were like Satanist, and then they'd inevitably become like hardcore Christians. <laughs> so number five was all all Satanists are Christians with daddy issues. Hmm. But I have seen a deeper truth in that over the years because when I find anything that like really pits itself against another thing, often – it pits itself against something that has the same foundational beliefs. I realized that a Satanist had to believe believe most of the same things about the universe that a Christian does. They're already basically a Christian. Take the Democrats and Republicans. You know, you take a Democrat. What does he hate more than anything else? It's usually Republican. That's who he's like debating against. But you take a step back and you realize they have all the same ideolo- ideologies, the same beliefs about the world. Um, you know, they're pitted against each other because they are actually so similar. And I see a lot of the the paradoxical truth in that. So anything you want to add to that, Teresa? No, I really like those. All right. (laughs) Never forget that not only was Hitler a Christian and a vegetarian, but that he and most of the Nazi party were convinced that they... We're the good guys. Beware of people who think they're the good guys. (laughs) All right, and here's some of our random thoughts. I want to talk a little bit about coffee. Um, You know, I think a lot about coffee because coffee is something that every day comes up with us because I, if at all possible, must have a cup of coffee. (laughs) It's true. I think about the ugliness of the industry, you know, that it's shipped here and like what goes into the coffee plantations and exploited workers. And I feel bad about my um, addiction to coffee. And am I addicted to coffee? I guess I am because if I do without coffee, I get a headache and I have a, a negative physical reaction. But um, 
often, like the game for me is also to have free coffee. So that's one way I feel good about not supporting the industry. So I've talked about how we go into continental breakfast in hotels, and I can pretty safely get a cup of coffee even if I choose not to get the breakfast, which is a little little higher risk. We also fill up at our bank, and we've got this big thermos we keep in our van. I think maybe my mom gave it to me, but it has become a huge tool for us, a very important tool. (laughs) Um, We found that if if we wrap the plastic bag mat I'm working on around the thermos, it'll usually keep it pretty warm for the next day. Um, and coffee's always been a ritual for me. You wake up and you start thinking about coffee first. And as much as I like the flavor, hazelnut creamer is my favorite and, you know, a little bit of sugar in it and just sitting there and enjoying the warmth, you know, the warmth is so special and then the smell and it becomes a meditation. And just the fact that it's a habitual, nice thing in the morning is just a very important ritual that grounds me. And then to consider the plant medicine, you know, that it does have a power. I can feel it in my body. When I first started drinking coffee and enjoying it, I drank too much of it one time and it made me feel really sick. So now at the most, I'll drink two cups if it's a really cold, chilly day, usually one cup. But that ritual has grown now that we're in the van because it's a whole ritual of how to acquire the coffee as well. (laughs) So not only do we not hit the same place, like we have a big circuit we do that always involves where are we going to go to get coffee, but we also remember who went in there first. So instead of us both going in there, except for the rare occasion we want to grab a breakfast together, um, one of us will go in there and get the coffee, and then the next time we're there, the other one will. So that, again, divides the time that they see either one of our faces. So less impact, less recognition that we're getting this coffee. And usually the people don't care. They're really friendly. I don't get any sense that they're even looking at me suspiciously, you know. I don't think they could care less if they knew I was a hobo going in there just to get some coffee. Um, hmm. Yeah, I guess that's all I want to say about coffee, just my little homage to coffee, and I really appreciate it. And, um, Teresa, you got anything to say? Not about these items. No. I feel like I'm talking a lot. Well, what's this conspiracy flu virus? All right. This is just a random thought that occurred to me one day. You know, <laughs> we're hearing about these flus and neither Teresa and I have gotten the flu shot and don't really intend to. Because um, for the most part, I believe that you build up an immunity and your body gets stronger by dealing with stuff. And I don't like the long-term implications. I also don't like the reliance on scientists who, you know, I don't trust. I don't trust what they tell me is good for me. I don't trust anything that makes me feel more reliant on things that are out of my hands and more dependent on a culture that I know is destructive. So for so many reasons, I don't get the flu shot. Um, And I also don't like the way it possibly selects for stronger flu viruses. Like I believe the flu actually is doing its thing. Do I want to die from a flu virus? No. But sooner or later... You know, every population gets controlled, gets reduced by another life form. And if it's my turn, I'd rather learn how to do that graciously than just be willing to move heaven and earth and do any destructive thing possible to, you know, extend my selfish life. But it occurred to me, you know, here's a government that I know that we have that considers people their enemy that I wouldn't necessarily consider our enemy. You know, like I think about what happened with the indigenous people and that this is the same government. We often think like 
that something back in history and we've changed. We have not. <laughs> we you know, we're studying history. Out. Yeah. The reason why you don't hear about indigenous peoples more is because that battle got, for the most part, won. And um, it just doesn't come up a lot. But now we're doing the same thing to other countries. So, you know, what if the government decided that people that weren't cooperating with the government, and if you're a paranoid schizophrenic, you might want to turn off the, the podcast right now. Um, yeah, put on your foil hat. So what a great way to get rid of people like that if you came up with a weaponized virus. And by the way, we know that they're doing this as well. We know they keep the worst viruses that the earth has produced and experiment on weaponizing them. Many countries do this. We know this for a fact. This isn't science fiction. The only thing that is uh, debatable is have they been used or will they use them? But the fact that they experiment with this stuff is not a debate. It's done. So what if it was decided, and you got to figure there are people that acknowledge that the population is a problem. There's too many people. There are people that are a threat to national security. Let's face it, the Ted Kaczynski's out there, the people that maybe would support Ted Kaczynski, the people that don't believe in the government, the people that want to overthrow the status quo, Given a certain way of looking at things, these people are a threat to national security, to the citizens that are doing what they're supposed to, that abide by the laws. These people are dangerous. So what if you could reduce the population with one of these weaponized viruses we already have and get rid of people that are a threat to other people that are basically criminals waiting to happen, if not already criminals? Think about how many people are already anarchists that are already, because they're of their anarchist philosophy, already breaking some kind of law that they haven't been caught for yet. What if you release that? Now, who would get hit by it? Probably the fringe people, the anarchists, the rebels, because they're the ones thinking like I do that I don't want to get this, you know, vaccine. Right, the anti-vaccine people. All the law-abiding people, the people that play by the rules, the people that allow the rich people to keep being rich and are willing to work for their, you know, chance to be rich too, that are playing by the the game, um, they're the ones that go and get the flu vaccine. So what if the flu vaccine was actually engineered for this one weaponized virus and it wasn't known and it protected the people that are supposed to be protected? What a way to wipe people out. Now, I don't really think this is happening, but my next thought was, wow, I live in a culture where it is so possible. All the pieces are there. And I found that disturbing. You know, the fact that I do live in a culture that has weaponized viruses, that experiments with that, that does consider people that don't go along with the status quo, which we all know to be destructive, as potential enemies of the state, um, and that the people that are obediently playing by the rules are taking in a vaccine that is not very well understood. Um, Yeah, just the pieces of that puzzle, even if they're not fitting together (laughs) the way my paranoia for that moment feared they might, the fact that the pieces exist kind of blew me away. Um, And finally, my last random thought. (laughs) I posed the question, what if the world could be saved if you stopped living this way right now? Now, I believe it could. I'm an optimist. I believe that what is keeping the world from Improving, what I mean by improving, you know, we have to define a lot of these terms, is that species aren't going extinct at this high rate, that, uh, you know, ecosystems aren't collapsing, um, that we're not having so much destruction. Um, 
again, waves and ocean, you know, I'm thinking of this in, in not just human terms, but like animal terms as well. I believe it could heal if we stopped our war with it. Now, what if you knew that today was the last chance, that if you if we all stopped right now, and if you stopped right now, that the world could start to heal, but we're right at the tipping point. What if you knew that this this was it? This was the tipping point. It's not 10 years from now. Screw you, Greta Thunberg and the scientist. It's not, you know, two years from now. Whatever number they want to throw at us to keep us playing ball. What if it was today? And what if you knew it? I don't know how you would know it. I'm not, I don't know if it's a divine thing. Maybe you believe in science more than anything else. Maybe they figured it out. But somehow you knew where you were convinced. You were personally convinced. This was it. This was the tipping point. If you stop now, if we all stop now, the earth would regenerate. But tomorrow, one more day of this, it's past the tipping point. The cascade happens. There's no stopping it. It's the end of all things, all species. Would you stop? So that was my question. And basically, like, what would it take? What would it take to have that kind of courage? What if everybody agreed to do it? Would that be it? That you need to be part of a group? But what if you were the one person? You were that 100th monkey. You were that person that when you do it, you convince one other person. One other person saw you do it and was like, holy shit, it can be done. Mm -hmm. They did it. They just, I can't believe, wow, you're really not going to flip another light switch? You're not going to turn another car key? You're just going to see if you can survive? What if you don't survive? Wow, it's worth it just to see? Mm -hmm. Man, that's inspiring as shit. All right, I'm with you. I'll do it. I'll do it, damn it. I'll do it. Now there's two of you. What if that inspired somebody else? What if you were that hundredth monkey? And what if this was the day that was the last chance? And what if that, the world has been waiting on you to do that? And that's what spread. That's what turned the tide. That's what opened up the glorious next, next paradigm where we have another way to live that doesn't rely on this technology that destroys us. That's my random thought. I just consider that. And I consider things like that for myself, too. You know, like, what's it going to take? Like, how extreme would I be willing to get? And what would it take to get me there? Never forget that indigenous peoples all over the world model a way of life which fosters a healthy relationship with our planet, contented people, and a hopeful future for their children better than our way. We choose not to follow it. Oh, I like that. That was kind of like Maya Angelou. Whoa. Oh, wow, I just got so into that role, I totally <laughs> forgot I had other stuff. Well, yeah, you can have that. Well, so uh, speaking of sharing, we wrote down on our list of things to talk about some hobohemia philosophy. And I just got done reading Citizen Hobo. It's been like, I don't know, six months or something. <laughs> we had other things to do. Um, and what is hobohemia philosophy? Like, what are some things that are involved in that? And one of the things that I was thinking about was, we talked about before, working only when you want to. Working 
only when you believe in what you're doing. Maybe that's taking it a step further than some hobos. And even that study that I was trying to be a part of, like maybe somewhere along the line, maybe that same day I would have decided, no, this isn't working for me. This isn't worth like exchanging something that I believe in for money. Um, something that they're questioning or making me question. It's like, now I'm just going to walk away from this. Um, something else is hobos were often like when they, when the hobo army was tramping about the country, they were veterans of the civil war. They weren't just like bums or people that were out of work. They were, they were people that had seen some stuff and they weren't ready to exchange their freedoms for what they felt was the weakening of, um, of their lives through domestication. And domestication being like settling down, getting married, having kids, getting a job, paying for all this stuff, having a house. Um, so they were fighting that. And I feel like in a lot of ways we're fighting that too. I'm trying not to domesticate Gumby. He's untamable. Girl. <laughs> Don't complain. Oh, Gumby, you want to talk about that one? <laughs> I complain all the time, so I can't really. Yeah, we were just impressed reading about some of these uh, philosophies of the hobos, and one of them was that they wouldn't complain. You know, there's stories of, like, they'd be under these ramshackle shelters leaking on cold days, and it was rare to hear a hobo other than just kind of, you know, little like old man grumbling kind of stuff <laughs> any serious complaint you know part of being a hobo was to take responsibility for your choices and to really like um i don't know be tough i really appreciated that and that that also kind of goes along with the domestication because some people some hobos did decide that you know what i'm not sleeping out tonight i'm getting a room but then if you're tempted by the boarding house, by getting a room or even just a bunk or the floor of a uh, saloon, then what? Then maybe a hot meal. Then maybe you're thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have this all the time? Maybe I could uh, shack up with some woman somewhere and have this all the time. And eh, if I have to trade my freedom and get a job, maybe it's worth it. So that one little step of like complaining and then getting something that in the in the short term, seems like a good plan, can turn into something for the long term. You just lose yourself. In the music, the moment, the moment. <laughs> Don't save or hoard. And I'm still working on this, Gumby. I don't know if you're working on it, but thinking about those stories that we shared earlier about just people sharing and people caring about others and yeah, that whole not worrying for the morrow, like that was a big part of being a hobo. It was uh, said that because, you know, if the hobo's philosophy, you have no reason to save up money. The reason you save up money is because you're, you're frightened of tomorrow and that you want to change your life. But a hobo doesn't want to change their life. A hobo celebrates their life. And so if you come across some money, if maybe you work and you got a paycheck, you share it. You know, like, all right, drinks are on me. You, you know, treat. You, yeah, you have like a hell of a great night, and then tomorrow you're broke again, but that's fine, because by making <laughs> making being broke your baseline, it's your strength. You're not, you're not afraid of it. You're used to being broke, but it's a celebration when you have money. 
Now, we've done the opposite. I'm going to talk about inverted truths soon, um, but there's one. You know, like, we make our norm that we have money, and so we have to be scared of what's not our baseline, which is being broke. Mm. And think about the trap that gets us stuck in. Now we always have to make money, and think about what you have to do to make money. You know, often things that you might not believe in, that you don't want to do, answering to somebody else, being exploited by somebody who's making more money than you when you're doing most of the work, that kind of crap. Yeah, and just getting back to sharing. That's... Yeah, well, we're kind of antisocial, so I guess that's what you meant. That we're not very good at that, but <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of like being in a, a the jungle. You know, the jungle is the group of hobos, and and sharing like mulligan stew. Everybody throws in something, and so, suddenly you've got a really tasty stew. So uh, yeah, we don't really find Teresa and I are still working on a lot of these philosophies. We're impressed by the philosophies, and they're kind of uh, fermenting in us, mm. but. You know, we still have our little like we're we're somewhat prepared for the morrow. We both save up a little bit of money and you know, don't just go and like share it, but more and more I see the beauty of that kind of life. Um but like probably most of our listeners and most of us and most people I know, living up to your absolute highest ideals is a process. We're not there yet. Mhm. And that's really all I had. I just thought it was interesting uh learning from the hobos. Mhm. And that leads us to something else we struggle with is celebrating, like, when I consider that we're on the verge of the collapse, and I believe we definitely are. Actually, we're, I believe we're in the collapse. We're not waiting for it. It's happening. Um, here's a couple of things I consider. Like, for instance, I love a Papa John's pizza with jalapenos and anchovies. Love anchovies. And uh, just with everything else on it and tomatoes. So... We've been all over this country, and it is it is sad. Yeah, there are pizzas that are good, but nothing beats a Papa John's. Mm-hmm. And just as an example, I could make example after example, but here's an example of the struggle. On the one hand, you know, what if society collapsed this week, and what if there were no more Papa John's? Would I not feel like, shit, man, well, I was, like, worried about my money, but, like, <laughs> that was my last chance to have my favorite pizza. Like, what does it matter, you know, about, like, what was the big environmental impact of that one freaking pizza compared to my joy of my last favorite pizza? So there's something to be said for celebrating, you know, on the verge of collapse, you know, indulging somewhat. And to me, that's sort of part of the hobo philosophy, too. If you got money, if you got a way to do it, celebrate it. You know, just blow it. Have that great night, because screw tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself, just like the Bible says. St. Matthew chapter 6. Gumby's biggest fear when we were on that Whole30 diet was that the world was going to end and he couldn't eat pizza or oh, yeah. have beer. <laughs> oh, man. If the world would have ended and I would have been on that Whole30 diet... <laughs> I don't even have words. But, you know, but one of the things missing from the hobo philosophy was the environmental crisis. Mm. So now we also have the freegan philosophy to consider. Um, do I want to support places like Papa John's, the businesses, all the things that I know that are ugly that go into getting that pizza to me? You know, I'm not entitled to that pizza. There's a whole culture that is destroying the world. And by buying that pizza, I'm playing that game. It may just be a pizza. You know, it's the the paradoxical truth again. Now I know I'm considering a truth because I see the paradox. On the one hand, it's just one pizza. On the other hand, 
that one pizza is emblematic of a whole way of life. So it's both unimportant and extremely important. So we dance with that. I don't know that there is an answer because all truth is paradoxical. But that is something that I have to decide every day. And sometimes I lean one way, sometimes I lean the other. Like, for instance, I'm living out of a van. Are there days that I wouldn't like like to have like a place to live and a hot shower anytime I want and take a long, luxurious hot bath? And, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm giving up um, because I lean in certain parts of my philosophy to the freegans. I don't want to support this lifestyle. But there's other things I lean towards the celebration of life, blowing my money. Like, you know, we just had a dragon's milk beer last night. Very expensive beer, 11%. Tastes so good. It's just awesome <laughs> beer. And I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel like that was wrong because it felt like a celebration of life. And one day, that beer won't be around anymore. And I'm going to be sitting around a campfire eating like a squirrel, if we're lucky, thinking, oh, shit, you remember dragon's milk? My God, I wish I had a dragon's milk right now. So, you know. We have practice with that in our survival overnights. And this is all tied together because this makes me think of the Buddhism, the power of mind and imagination, that that actually enhances my appreciation of things as thinking broken glass sin. Dragon's milk, by its nature, by being in this reality, will not be around forever one way or the other. So to remind myself of that when I drink a dragon's milk, what if this was the last one? You know? Um, and I just want to talk about Hollywood for a moment because, like I said, I believe we are in the collapse and Hollywood has brainwashed us to not recognize it. Hollywood has made us have a certain picture of the collapse. It's either got to involve zombies or machines or... The point is something drastic, something aliens. that like yesterday you were doing your thing, aliens, yeah, yesterday you were doing your regular thing, now you can't do that thing, so now we're all pulling together and forgetting about our divisions of the, the past world, and now we're pulling together to survive. Unfortunately, I think the reality of what the apocalypse looks like is the worst scenario, and it makes for a shitty movie. It doesn't make for an exciting movie at all. It's a slow death. It's the boiling frog. Yeah. Oh, it's God. slow, slow. And we're in it. You know, there might be hope if the aliens landed and suddenly you can't watch Oprah anymore. You know, fuck that. I was willing to take a lot of shit. 200 species going extinct every day. All right, I didn't like it. Uh, two football fields of forest fall in a second. You know, piss me <laughs> off, but... Oprah. Now, you now I can't watch Oprah. We got to get rid of those aliens. We got to band John's. together. We got to fight. No Papa fun. John's. No beer. Oh, no beer. That that would be the thing. <laughs> but it ain't gonna be like that. It's always gonna be just slow enough that you're perturbed about some stuff. But you know, I'm I'm beginning to think, and this is like one of my more frightening thoughts that there's not gonna be a crisis. It's gonna be a slow death that just keeps getting slowly worse. I can imagine like a world like, you know, if you remember Terminator, the first movie, when they showed the future, it's all black and everything's dead and there's machine parts everywhere and machines hunting people with lasers. I can imagine them like on the radio and talking to their intelligence officer and their officer said, yeah, we've gotten our best minds together. And it turns out there's only gonna be another like five years before the collapse. <laughs> that's what i'm talking about like we're, we, we it goes just slow enough that we freaking normalize it mm. 
And that's our strength, our adaptability, but it's also our weakness because we adapt to things we shouldn't adapt to. Yeah, the other day we were listening to the radio and this woman in Australia was talking about how she was studying. She was well aware of the dangers of the air quality after all of the the bushfires that are happening in Australia. And uh, unfortunately, she lost her baby. She was pregnant and... Um, she had been able to take some precautions and have like an air filter in her house and and all of these other precautions, but she still feels like um, this world is getting to the point where she's not sure if she even wants to have a kid. And that little blip, that little conversation that we just happened to hear when we were in the van, um, we're going to forget that. We're going to forget that really soon. And it's that amnesia and that just normalizing what Gumby was talking about. Like, oh, I mean, you know, now sitting in your house, the air particles, the particulate matter is, you know, dangerous to babies. But, I mean, it's it's okay if you're not a baby mm-hmm. or an elderly person or maybe someone that's, you know, a little bit younger than 80 years old or maybe a 20-year-old or everyone. These Buddhist mental exercises, you know, they help me see things that I haven't seen before. Quinn also talks about this with the Martian anthropologists. But instead of going into the future, imagine 200 years in the past. Now, imagine there's somebody that, like, species aren't going extinct at the rate they were, that they are, you know, that is used to the air feeling a certain way. I wonder if somebody, like, got blipped into the present if it would look like full-on collapse because they didn't have time for the slow boiling, you know, that they would look around and like, my God, like what? There's what kind of diseases around? Like, you know, like, I mean, it would just, there's holes in the sky. <laughs> it's like what? That, oh, it's like that guy, um, you posted the, the skit. He was like, you're taking what out of the gar- oil? Yeah. What did you do to the polar bears? They're covered in oil. There's an island the size of a state of trash in the ocean. What? (laughs) What are you doing up there? But it's gone just slow enough that we're like, eh, you know, we've normalized it. And, you know, it makes for shitty fiction, but horrifying reality. All right, Teresa. Never forget, the world is being murdered. By a way of life that devours an environment <laughs> it sees as dead, objectified resources. To speak of solar, wind, or other green energies is only to look for other ways to fuel a way of life that is murdering the world. It misses the point entirely. Civilization doesn't need a facelift. It needs dismantling. Wow. All right, so (laughs) we're almost done with this episode. I don't think we can do a short episode anymore. I think we've lost the ability. But... We were reading this book that Teresa alluded to, Citizen Hobo, and one of the things that was in the book was this missing verse of Big Rock Candy Mountain, which I know how to play on guitar, so you know, <laughs> I'd play that at camp. And it turns out this was actually written by a hobo, and it was actually kind of a dirty song. And there was this one verse that was so uh, 
inflammatory. They took it out. <laughs> and so most people have never heard of this verse. And there was one line in it that was so bad it wasn't even in the book. And we thought, wow, man, I'd like to know what that one line is. It's been lost to history. Yeah, I thought we'd never find it. And here it <laughs> was on Wikipedia the whole time. <laughs> Teresa found the line. <laughs> And we would, like, make up the dirtiest things we could for that line, and it turns out that the existing line is as bad as anything we made up. (laughs) It's almost the same as the baddest thing, worst thing you made up. So we're going to try to do that verse for (laughs) you. And I haven't practiced guitar all winter, so be patient. Give me, let me do a run through. Uh... Like a hobo's whore. He was a dirty hobo. (laughs) So that whole song about Big Rock Candy Mountain is this like jocker who's an older hobo convincing this younger hobo to follow him while he's buggering him every night and Mm. saying, oh, just follow me, kid. And, you know, Lemonade Springs where the bluebird sings. Mm, All that stuff. Never forget. Civilization is composed of cities that by definition, have to import goods from outside to exist because they have outstripped the carrying capacity of the land. Because a city needs outside resources to exist, it must take them from the land outside the city. And since this land is usually already occupied, a city must depend on Violence. This is a city. This is civilization. (laughs) So, our message from a listener. We have Nina from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And we happen to know Nina. Her daughters came to our summer camps. I've known them for a couple years. And uh, Nina's a friend of ours. So she writes, Hi, Gumby. I just discovered your podcast. I'm very thankful for the info you are sharing about Wetico and animism especially. It was hard for me to hear the 9-11 folks described as heroes, but my first reaction when I heard the news that day was, it was a matter of time before those we screw fight back at the pillars of U.S. power. I'm torn between running in the woods this afternoon in silence versus listening to another podcast. Heading to the garden a bit later. Not a ton of food in there at the moment, but you guys are always welcome in the garden or on the land I showed you. I know there are chanterelles. The girls would love to see you and Teresa and Sherlock one of these days. Aww. Well, thank you, Teresa. I think this was no, just the... No, that was Nina. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Nina. <laughs> I think that was the first uh, write-in that is from somebody we know that we've read. So, yeah, we hope to get out there. Um, Nina and her girls showed me this land they, they own that was really pretty. And, um, yeah, it might be nice to check it out sometime, have a little place to park our van, have a fire. 
Um, and thank you for the invitation to the community garden, definitely. Um, and mostly what she was referring to here was our Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps podcast. Mm. Anything you want to add to that? Was she also referring to, was it Unabom or what was that? No, I think the 9-11 reference was also in five. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in balderdash.com. Check out our Facebook page under the name Escaping Society. And uh, do you want to talk about any of the new updates you've done to the website? We added at Bill's request a recommended reading list. And um, Gumby also just did a video yesterday, so we have a new YouTube video. And, God, it seemed like there was... Oh, and Gumby worked really, really hard. I showed him how to do all the website stuff. It's pretty easy anyway, but it's also frustrating because computers and technology just... They're not nice sometimes. But he updated a lot of the survival overnights information and pictures. So you can check that out, escapingsociety.weebly.com. And, um, yeah, send in comments, questions, and we <laughs> I'll promise, I will make a promise here that we will try not to do the beatnik thing again. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Never forget, no matter who your ancestors, what color, what part of the world they lived in, they were once a proud, strong and contented tribe who were broken down, colonized, and oppressed until they identified with their tormentors like many victims of abuse. You are not them. Thank you. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.